again and welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey and in this series we chat with doctors and health professionals who forge all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. My guest in this episode is Dr. Neela Janakiramanen who many of you may know from her work around asylum seeker health advocacy or perhaps from her growing media profile. She's a Melbourne-based reconstructive plastic surgeon specialising in hand and wrist surgery as well as skin cancers. Neela is an incredible communicator with a passion for public health and a lot to say. So we covered a lot of territory in this conversation from her perspectives on experiencing Victoria's extended lockdown restrictions as a clinician to seeing her grandfather performing surgery in rural India and being inspired to pursue a career in medicine. Uh, the incredible story of why she chose surgery as her specialty. Her thoughts on She spoke about her thoughts on the culture changes that have been necessary in the medical profession and, uh, of course, her experiences as a public health advocate and what drives her to push for social justice and equity. Um, she's also got a lot of great advice um, for any doctors who may be wanting to pursue a health media profile or to advocate the kinds of issues that she champions, including some warnings about the, some of the negative aspects uh, that she, you might encounter that can uh, include you know, dealing with criticism, um, being used, uh, and even copying outright abuse. It was a fascinating conversation and I should flag that if you'd like to hear more from Neela, she'll be, of course, a speaker as part of the Creative Careers in Medicine 2020 conference, uh, which is only a few weeks away now. Uh, it's a fully digital or virtual conference event this year due to COVID. Uh, it's taking place on the 12th and 13th of December. And if you've not already seen the announcement, um, sadly, Dr. Carl Krasnicki, who was slated to be a guest speaker, has had to withdraw from the conference. But in wonderful news... Dr. Norman Swan will be taking his place. Norman, who has had a decorated career as a public health communicator and journalist and clinician over many years, um, has a podcast, of course, which has become essential listening in 2020, the Coronacast. So I can't wait to see him as part of his CCAM 2020 conference. To register for that event, if you've not already, go to creativecareersinmedicine.com and follow the links to the events page. And while you're there, you can read all about the CCIM member program and all the benefits that come with that. So on that note, it's on to our interview with Dr. Neela Janakiramanen. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Dr. Neela Janakiramanen, thank you so much for joining the CCIM podcast. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Now, your Based in Melbourne, of course, um, you've recently yeah. come out of um, an emer- like a, well, I guess emerging still, I guess, from a prolonged uh, lockdown period down there. Yeah. Certainly Australia's longest and, and most uh, strict one, given how sh- fortunately short-lived uh, the one, the recent, most recent one in South Australia was. How has 2020 been for you personally? What kind of sort of emer- emotional impact did the lockdown have on you? And, and what was your experience been like coming out of it? Oh, look, I think it's been a roller coaster ride for most of us. Um, the the thing with a pandemic is it's real unpredictability. And so, you know, it was, there, there are, for me, I found the transition points the most stressful because as an individual, you have very little power to change what's happening um, either on a very pragmatic level or uh, in terms of some of the policy decisions that get made. So I think we, we had a, uh, an Australia-wide experience of that back mm. in March and April when we all went into lockdown together, um, and and the states all came out of that in a in a fairly similar sort of way. But then, of course, in Victoria, things started kicking off almost straight away. And 
because Australia hadn't really had, I mean, we, we call it a second wave, but we didn't really have a first wave. There was, you know, very low levels of community mm. transmission uh, and the virus was predominantly circulating amongst returned travellers. Um, so a, a more socioeconomically advantaged group um, and a group that was much more able to uh, weather the effects of self-isolation and things like that. Mm. Um, and so so I think, you know, in Victoria, there was a sense that uh, our public health systems would be able to keep up and that, you know, we, we had a global standard of contact tracing and infection control and all of these sorts of things. And, of course, viruses are cleverer than humans. <laughs> And so, you know, things did sort of get a little bit out of control um, and certain policy interventions were were needed to bring that in control. People talk a lot about the lockdown because it is the thing that was most visible, I think, Mm, um, mm. both at a local level and, you know, at a national level. I think it's very hard for people from other states to see all of the small things that happened uh, and a lot of things that happened with significant advocacy um, from the broader healthcare worker community, so not just doctors, but nurses and aged care yeah. and allied health and all of those those groups, paramedics. Um, so it changes around the way contact tracing was done, the changes around who was isolated and the isolation of household contacts, changes around making healthcare work, uh, work places a lot safer. Um, so the lockdown was really, I suppose, the the cover on everything to allow these really complicated policy changes to actually be brought in. And I, I hope that, you know, people who are listening don't assume that it was just a lockdown. I'm, I'm not anti-lockdown. I think mm. that it, it served a purpose and it stopped things getting out of control so these other things could be optimised. Um, but but it was only one part of the whole thing. And I think, you know, particularly internationally, um, those are the things that, that people need to look at because it took us, 16, 17 weeks of fairly significant restrictions to get from, uh, I think it peaked at, I know the number that it said is 700 cases a day, but subsequent to that, many reclassifications have have occurred. So I think our true maximum was about 670 uh, cases a day in August, um, down to basically zero. Yeah. And so 16 weeks is a long time and it's hard, you know, if, if the UK can't even stomach two to three weeks, it's hard to see them going for much longer and mm-hmm. so you know if you're trying to get down from thousands of cases a day you're looking at months and months and months and months of lockdown yeah. um so i hopefully what victoria has unearthed is what needs to be controlled and, and particularly around insecure work and uh the essential workers who continue to spread it um under conditions of lockdown because they were the ones who were still allowed to leave their house uh, and and go to these vulnerable, insecure, mm, mm. high-risk workplaces. Speaking of which, obviously you um, work in one of those. Um, how did the how did all of this impact on your ability to, to work? Because I know obviously, you know, COVID had a huge impact on, um, regardless of the restrictions, it was, it was already putting um, a, a big impact on people's decisions to whether they were even seeking consultations with doctors or even yes. then following through on treatments and those kinds of things. How did it impact yeah. your practice and your patients and your ability to, to, you know, to do your job and to help people ultimately? Oh, look, it was really hard. Um, so you're right, there was, a, there was a real fear in the community um, and people not presenting for necessary medical care. So as a plastic surgeon, I see a lot of skin cancers, so those, um, those referrals dropped off precipitously um, and now we're seeing people presenting uh, with bigger cancers that will need more extensive 
treatment, both surgery and perhaps post-operative radiotherapy and things like that. Um, and I think that all cancer surgeons have, have found this. Um, I also do a lot of complex hand and wrist surgeries. Yeah. Uh, and so it, almost everything that I do, apart from skin cancer, is category two. Uh, it's not it's not non-urgent. It's not extremely urgent. Um, and I personally, you know, very much use um, the restrictions on surgery as an absolute rule. And I didn't book anyone that didn't need care because, mm-hmm. you know, there was a need to offload the health services and there was, you know, hospitals are a high-risk environment. And if you come in for your carpal tunnel surgery and you get coronavirus, then that's not a good outcome. No. Um, so, so most of us in surgery has uh, come out of the lockdowns with, a flurry of referrals and a backlog of cases to work through. Um, the, the the public system has equally uh, done the same. So waiting lists for outpatient appointments, waiting lists for surgery have have gotten longer, uh, and that's really hard for patients. You know, I'm you know I know that there are lots of doctors out there who have patients cry in their rooms every day. You know, GPs, oncologists, lots, mm-hmm. lots of specialties. As a you know, skin cancer and hand surgeon, people don't usually cry in my consulting room. And for most of September, almost everyone cried. Um, and it was the combination of, you know, living with these untreated health conditions that were causing pain, knowing that they couldn't necessarily access care. Uh, on the background of all of the other stresses, people losing houses, losing businesses, yeah. being separated from their families, not having their normal support. Um, and so it was, yeah, it's been a tough, tough couple of months. There's a lot that I do want to cover with you, and you've touched on some of those already, um, because you know, obviously, as well as as the skin cancer work that you do, you're as you touched on, you're a reconstructive plastic surgeon specialising in yeah. hand and wrist surgery. You're also a columnist. You're an outspoken social and public health advocate, and like a few of your your other CCIM alumni, I'm one of Vion Sharma has being one that, that springs immediately to mind. You. you Growing, growing yep. media profile, popping up on you know, panel shows like the, the Drum and discussing all manner of, of issues. But before we get to that, I want to rewind sort of how how do we get to that place? So I wanted to hear about how your journey to medicine began. Was what was the? Can you talk us through what the initial spark was for you and why the decision to to pursue a career in medicine? Um, so my grandfather was a doctor. Um, he was a rural uh, GP uh, slash interventionist. Um, in India, right. and so he had his own practice. It was, you know, right outside his back door. Um, and so the first surgical procedures that I saw was when I was eight years old, uh, when I went in and, um, and watched him take out some tonsils. And you know, back then it was the 1980s. You know, it was nearer of modern anaesthetic, but that's not what was available in rural India. And so he was still using ether anesthesia. So he had, uh, he gave the anaesthetic and did the surgery wow. himself. He, he had an anaesthetic assistant who would. And drip the ether onto the mask and count out. He would count out the drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually fainted from the ether fumes <laughs> and had to be carried out. Um, so that was that was what I wanted to do. Interestingly, my parents, uh, despite being uh, Indian with um, very stereotypical uh, propensity to encourage children to pursue careers in medicine, engineering, yeah. uh, and other such things, um, they actually didn't encourage me at all. Um, right. In fact, my mother was fairly discouraging. Um, she, One of my aunts is an obstetrician gynecologist in London. And right. so mum had sort of seen how she had struggled um, with the culture of medicine, with the workplace 
um, challenges with the hours, uh, with the structural racism, lots and lots of issues. Yeah. Um, and so mum was like, why would you want to do that? Uh, but despite despite all of that, you know, they once I had decided that that was what I wanted to do, they were they were quite supportive. And um, I, interestingly, I I wanted to do medicine, but even in high school, my second preference was journalism because I really loved writing. Yeah. And so my careers counselor had an absolute conviction when I announced to her that in my list of preferences, I was going to rank medicine at each of to the two of Melbourne universities uh, and then journalism third. And she was just like, but if you want to be a doctor, why don't you go and do biomedical science? Or why, why don't you put yeah. all of these other things after that? And I was like, but I don't want to do any of those things. You know, if I can't be a doctor, I'd, I'd rather write. You know, I'd rather do journalism. I mean, I actually sat the entrance exam at, at RMIT and I'll never know if I got in or not because I did get into medicine. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you talk about because you know, obviously you, you eventually, as we'll get to, you you after you completed your medical training, you went back and did your master's in public health. This is obviously, mm. uh, you know, it's interesting to hear that this was obviously, even from an early age, there was those two things that seemed to go hand in hand for you in your mind. It was not just, okay, I really want to study medicine because of the experiences you know, you've just gone through in terms of um, your exposure to the, you know, the, the change and the, and the, um, the, the difference that, that um, surgeons can make. But also, I what being yeah. having a, having a voice and being able to write about that was that were they tied together or were they quite separate? They were quite separate, actually. Um, I the writing side of things was not something that I ever in, envisaged for as being part of my career, and that that all happened quite by accident. Um, but I've always had quite a strong commitment to equity and justice, and I, I think it's interesting. Um, so I my family is the same community uh, in India as Kamala Harris's um, mother right. came from. And so, you know, you know not, not quite the same village, but not that kind of connectivity. Okay. Um, but, but there is a very generational thing uh, about um, that group of people who, um, so she's about 10 years older than me, so her grandparents would have been a little bit older than mine as well. But that was the post-independence era in India where people with privilege really um, felt a strong need to create a better and more equitable society. You know, India had been colonised for hundreds of years, mm. uh, recently become independent, so there was this very strong idea about equity and justice and governance and helping the lower classes um, you know, emerge from all of this. And so her... her uh, grandparents worked in the public service. One, my father's father also worked in, in the Indian public right. service. Um, and he was a very, very staunch uh, advocate of anti-corruption policies. Um, and a lot of my uncles have since gone on and worked in the Indian public service. And on my mother's side, my grandfather was a doctor. And he, in fact, um, spent the first half of his career working uh, in the public service as, as a GP. Um, and it was really only much later on that he entered private practice because it, it wasn't it was something that he felt he shouldn't do that that his his role was to provide service to the community and and there, there was a whole lot of politics that eventually drove him to to the private sector sure, as, as sure. it often does. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I was I was really raised with those ideas of um, equity and justice and fighting for people who don't have a voice. And so 
you know, for me, I mean, my master's was also a bit of an accident. Um, <laughs> I, I was doing a bit of, of, of research because I wanted to get into surgery. And, um, and I learned very early that there were not many surgeons at the hospital I was working at that had a lot of interest in research, but the physicians all did. And so I was actually working with a rheumatologist to do some research on large joint osteoarthritis. And, um, and they also coordinated the MPH program. And so, you know, over coffee, someone suggested I want to do the MPH I'm like oh yeah that'd be great and you know 20 minutes later I was signed up <laughs> um, but but it was it was a fantastic degree yeah. because I think in surgery we forget uh how much preventative um medicine has a role because surgery has won a lot of those fights in Australia we we have better workplace protections we have seat belts we have safer roads you know these these are actually things that surgeons fought for right. um and, uh, and similarly, we have, um, you know, we, one of the things that I did in my Master's Public Health, my thesis was on the role of surgery in, in the developing world and, and that context. Um, because it's interesting, we don't, we think about surgery as the pinnacle of medicine. Um, you know, the top of that pyramid and that, you know, you need your sewerage and your vaccination and all of that sort of mm-hmm. stuff at the bottom. But the problem that happens is that if you if you get all of that, that broad base of the pyramid right, then all of a sudden you have kids who are surviving infancy and then getting vaccinated for their surviving childhood and then they're dying because of their untreated appendicitis or because they were involved in a car accident and there wasn't surgical care for them. So you, it is actually a really essential part of a of a comprehensive health service, um, and that's that's what my that degree made me realise is that choosing to become a surgeon wasn't a cop out from you know wanting to advocate for good medicine and equity and justice. It was actually part of the package. Obviously, I mean, you you talk about the surgery and some of the, some of the wins. There's there's obviously the, the the flip side of that. There's the, the darker side of surgery as we've seen. In, recent years that you know the, the the toxic culture that's been that was highlighted by a case like in the Kokodota um, um mm. only in, in recent years what was your experience like obviously her most you know obviously most people listening to this conversation would be f- quite familiar with with her case where you know there was a situation yep. of um you know uh, ridiculous expectations around on call and working hours and burnout and the kinds of physical and mental health deterioration that ultimately led to her quitting the profession. And that was obviously highlighted and discussed very broadly. What was your experience going into surgery? Did you have anything that, that, because I mean, you know, is is it, is it a thing that permeates the entire um, sector or is it just sort of, do you think it's sort of particular settings where, where these things are still happening? Um, Look, uh, the first thing I would say is that surgery uh, is is a good example, um, but it is not the only place in medicine where this sort of behaviour occurs. Um, It is a, you know, those difficult cultures, those difficult workplaces, I think, permeate medicine. Um, Surgery has had a... uh, a lot of the spotlight focused on it, um, in part because of the women who have stood up and highlighted their experiences. Um, I I think that there is probably a little bit of a bias in that if you, if as as a young woman you have decided to make surgery your career, um, then you're probably of a personality that, um, doesn't 
necessarily take no for an answer. And so there have been a, a small number of really strong women who have come out and spoken up against this. And that has created space for a broader conversation mm. uh, to happen within the college. Um, it's interesting, when I was pregnant with my second child, um, I was actually still uh, in touch with the rheumatologist that I had done my research with a long time earlier. Um, and I remember running into one of them in a corridor and uh, one, one of them said to me, oh, so you're pregnant, you know, how is the College of Surgeons dealt with this? And this was in 2012 and right. I shrugged and I said, it's fine. I just told them I was taking a year off and it wasn't a problem. And, and it didn't, look, it, it wasn't quite as simplistic as that. You know, there was some discrimination that arose from the fact that I had two children during my surgical training and that, that created certain issues mm-hmm. at that time. But it was, there was no question as to whether I would be able to continue in my training or whether I would be able to access maternity leave some training to have a baby. Um, and this rheumatologist said to me, I'd love to talk to you in more detail because one of my trainees is having a really difficult time. She's also pregnant and she's been told that she's going to be thrown off the training program. Oh, wow. um, and interestingly, uh, our two babies, I never knew who this person was, but our two babies ended up going to school together. <laughs> um, and I now know this person who left rheumatology um, as a consequence of those experiences right. when she was pregnant, whereas I was able to continue and finish my training. Yeah. So, and I tell this example just to say that I think the physicians have problems and I think the GPs have problems and I think that you know every medical college has the same issues of culture. Um, and the I guess the good thing is it blew up in such a significant way both within the college and within the media and broader society uh, in 2015 with the College of Surgeons, that mm. they actually took quite a, a proactive approach. I think the first response was, that doesn't happen here. Um, and every college said that because, you know, I remember at the time it was on the radio and the, whoever the president of the College of Physicians was was like, that's oh, would Of course it's the surgeons. That would never happen to us. Right. And so but then what the surgeons did was they commissioned research and they got really good people in to actually do qualitative and quantitative research to demonstrate the extent of the problem and have worked really hard to bring in changes to make the profession more inclusive. So as an example, you know, one of my trainees this term has come back uh, with a young baby and her breastfeeding facilities were organised by my male head of unit with no intervention from any of the women on the unit. It was just sorted out. And the first I heard of it was when he called me up to say, these are the things that I've done. Is there anything else I should have thought about? And so, you know, that, that to me is surgery winning. But... Likewise, you know, I work where I work. I really like the people I work Mm, with. mm. And I know that not all units are like that. Every unit has its own individual culture. And part of the problem is that even though um, people who have ideas of equity and inclusivity, um, and they're not just women, they're men as well, Mm. um, you know, they don't work in the most problematic units because they don't want to. It costs too much. you know, even if they were to be given a job there, they don't last there because it's unpleasant. And so you n- don't get these champions of change in the places that most need it. And you get wonderful, inclusive, fantastic units in other contexts. 
Mm. Um, so I think that is a, a, a potential issue across medicine is we, we have a tendency to essentialize specialties and hospitals and things like that. But ultimately what it comes down to is the individual unit culture. Yeah. I mean, is, you, you mentioned a couple of things there. Going back to the conversation with your own mother and her concerns about um, mm. institutionalised racism within within the medical profession, but also mm. you obviously gender was a large part of that. Are they the the two um, the two key drivers that that needed to be you know because obviously there's some people say there's a generational thing as well. We still here in many professions, not just medicine, but you know the just you know I'm just thinking off the top of my head an example this week in the hospitality industry where you had this guy who employs a lot of people who has a lot of experience, but still was criticising younger people as being too soft or or effectively you know, brandishing their own harsh or traumatic training experiences, some kind of badge of honour that's you know to be treated mm. poorly in the workplace during that that sort of um, formative period of your your career in your training period yep. is some kind of rite of passage is that sometimes you know is that still sort of a lingering part of medicine do you think or is that, that or, you know do you, or do you think that is slowly being actually changed through some of the processes that you were just pointing to look it's really hard you know i i talk about gender and race because they are the um uh, the relative disadvantages mm. that i experience there are lots of others that, and i wouldn't want to speak for for any of those other issues, but but I don't think um, surgery or medicine in general treats you know people who have illnesses, chronic illnesses or disabilities particularly well. I know of at least one person who was a type one diabetic who chose not to practice hospital medicine because hospital medicine would not protect them from nights on call, um, and their blood sugars were too unstable to to do those nights. And uh, I, I don't necessarily think that you know doing nights is necessary to be a good doctor in any mm. specialty. Um, and I think that, you know, as a profession, we could be more understanding of people like that, but that was someone who was driven out of hospital medicine and into community medicine. Um, and, you know, look, they're very happy there. That, that I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that one's better than the other, but no. it, it is to, to not have an opportunity that they might otherwise have liked because the system didn't cater for them is, is a problem. Um, I have no idea of how um, other characteristics such as uh, being gay or lesbian or transgender or any of those yeah. things impact on medicine. So, so I, 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 I would struggle to say that it is necessarily getting better or worse. Mm. I do think there is a generational shift that is being driven um, about what being a good doctor looks like. I think yeah. that there are some barriers that are being broken down uh, in terms of um, workplace hours, in terms of what you know commitments in inverted quotes actually looks like. Um, and I do think that particularly since there are groups like CCIM that, that show that being a good doctor isn't just about, you know, going to your clinic every day and working yeah. 12 hours yeah. every day. Um, I, I think that that gives the younger generation hope that they can build a career that looks different to what it looked like 40 or 50 years ago. So speaking about that, because obviously I don't mean to give the impression that I'm just trying <laughs> to talk about the dark side of things, but no, uh, no, no. Cause obviously, you know, you've, you know, you've, you've got your career and then you, it was, I mean, it's quite obvious listening to you talk about, you're quite passionate and, and enjoy the work that you do. Why, why, you know, look, focusing on one, one element of it, why reconstructive plastic surgery um, as one area that I'm 
Ah, yeah. to hear you talk about. What was the attraction there? Because, I mean, there, you know, there are so many ways that doctors can help their patients, reconstructive hand surgery or resurgery. It's a, it's a fascinating area that's, that's no doubt quite complex. It's obviously quite often tied into, you know, it might be injury or trauma, so there might be a mental health element. Yep. What's, what's the attraction to you? So when I was in medical school and uh, organising my elective, I, I won't tell you the very long story of how I almost <laughs> went to Ethiopia to do paediatrics and that fell through. Um, but I ended up completely by accident um, at a hospital in Cambodia where they did reconstructive orthopaedic surgery. Um, and at this point, I was not even contemplating a surgical career. It was mm. just my organised fellowship had uh, elective had fallen through, and I needed to go somewhere, and someone knew someone, and you know, I went yep. to Cambodia, and. Um, so the first week that I was there, uh, one of our patients was a 16-year-old girl who had fallen from a height um, when she was three and she had fractured her tibia and um, and it had malunited. So basically it was in the shape of a Z. It was quite a lot shorter than the other leg. Mm. And she hadn't walked from the time she was three years old. And that was one of the first operations that we did. We um, we osteotomy of the leg, we straightened it up, we put some plates on it, we restored the length, made it straight, that sort of thing. Um, And I was there for six weeks and she was there for six weeks and at the end of that six-week period, she got up on some crutches and she walked and I thought, bloody fantastic. And I still still get tears in my eyes when I tell that story. Um, We were doing a lot of cleft repairs at the time. I don't do any clefts now, but but, but it's a very... um, uh, so, so they had some plastic surgeons there as well. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, this is cleft repairs and older children, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, that sort of age. And, you know, these are kids who were pariahs in their villages. Their parents had often, you know, sold a piece of livestock to travel to the city to get surgery for. Wow. And the surgery itself was being provided for free, but obviously they had to pay for transport. And yeah, things. exactly. Yeah. And we did it. And we did these operations under local anaesthetic. Um, kids would just hop up on the table and they'd lie down and they'd hold someone's hand while we, you know, filled, filled them up with local anaesthetic. And we'd do the repair and they would jump off the table and they would walk out to their parents wow. who were in the waiting room with intact lips, smiling. Gosh. And, you know, I'm tearing up again. Like it was, well, a, it was a really, really I, powerful I can, experience. I can imagine. I mean, you know, cards on the table, I, I was born myself with a um, – by flipping palette, so I can't imagine yeah, right. the um, the I'm I'm getting tear up myself now as well. Um, but the the especially the impact for for the, for the child and for the whole family, it's it's such a yep. it must be such a, a huge moment. Yeah, absolutely life changing. And yeah, we can have really philosophical discussions about facial difference and yeah. whether we should, you know, whether we could just make society better so that. Kids didn't have to be, you know, subjected to painful surgery just to be accepted by society. That's, that's a very philosophical sort yeah. of discussion. At a really pragmatic level, if you can restore Absolutely. someone's face, it, it, you know, that's that's a simple shortcut to giving them, you know, equitable access to to life. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's when I decided I wanted to do surgery. And as I remember my my then boyfriend, now husband, met me in Cambodia at the at the end of that time. And I took him out for dinner and I said to him, I have something to tell you. And he looked at me and he said, who did you sleep with? And I said, no, no, no one, no one, nothing, nothing like that. But it's possibly worse because I think I want to do surgery. And he went, oh, oh whatever. That's fine. Do what you like. And I'm like, you, you, you don't understand. He's not medical. And I said, you right. don't understand. And he said, whatever it is, we'll get through it together. And sure, it's um, probably just relieved you weren't uh, having an affair. 
<laughs> Maybe I should set up all of my difficult conversations <laughs> in that context. But, um, but years later, I, I, I said to him after I had fellowed, I said, um, would you change that answer? And he said, no, but I wish I'd known what you really meant. Right. Um, so anyway, so that's that's how I became uh, interested in reconstruction. Um, so I was going to become an orthopedic surgeon. I really like that reconstructive orthopedic side of things. Um, and then I came back and I did my internship and I did a whole bunch of terms as medical students and then interns. Uh, in orthopedics, and then I realized that I didn't really like hips or knees or ankles or backs or any of that other sort of stuff. I really liked hands and wrists. Um, and the reason I like hands and wrists is because every single one of my patients comes in and they sit down, and, and I always give them, you know, whatever amount of time they need to to deliver their little spiel that they practice in the car as, as right. they're driving in to see the specialist. Um, and And they always finish. Every single patient finishes with... And I really need my hands because. Right. And then the, right. the, the next thing they say is the core of who they see themselves as as a person. And it could be that they're a carer. It could be that they're a worker. It could be some hobby that they've got. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that, that that is the core of their essence and what's important to them follows the end of that sentence. And I love hearing that. Um, and interestingly, in the pandemic, that was one of the first things to drop off because people's identities had been taken away from them by the by the restrictions. Yeah. Um, so, so that was that was quite an interesting little observation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's that's why I love hand and wrist because it it hand and wrist problems get in the way of your core identity and fixing that gives people their lives back. Switching gears a little bit because there's I mm. I know that we've. Um, I've, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I want to try and get through with you. Um, you, I think we, we touched on a moment ago, your, your history in, in, in social justice advocacy and, and, yep. and equ- issues around equity and, and public health. One of the issues that people might be familiar or remember you um, from was your involvement with the open letter a couple of years ago to the, the Prime Minister mm. on behalf of some 8,000-odd Australian doctors. I think it mm. ended up being much higher than that. Um calling for the, the child asylum seekers to, to be removed from detention in Nauru. Um, now, ultimately, mm. that goal was achieved, I think, in early 2019, um, mm. if I'm remembering this correctly. Now, obviously, this is an ongoing issue that, that, that wasn't yeah. solved just because of that one campaign. But, you've, you know, we talked about your, your, your background in, in public health, having done your master's, and that being a part of, you know, you, you know, talked just now about, you know, part of you what your core identity is it seems very much that that this is something you've grown into that that's very much who you are can you tell me about how you and, and dr sarah town and who was the other the, you know the gp or something of a tireless worker and this mm. these kinds of issues as well um what how did you come together to work on that on, on that campaign and that issue what that experience was like what fears or concerns you might have had going in um mm. and what it felt like given the response that you ultimately received from, from the medical community yeah, so Sarah is the real hero in yeah. in all of this. Um, she she her involvement um, preceded mine. Um, so she had <coughs> excuse me. Right. She had um, sat in her car one day and read a story about uh, an asylum seeker who was denied access to palliative care. Um, he had a lung cancer and he was dying. And she works with as part of her day job. Uh, in pediatric palliative care, and it had just moved her so much that this this injustice had happened mm. that she actually wrote the first open letter, which was in about June of 2018, um, and that got two or three thousand signatures um, calling for that man to be moved uh, mm. from Nauru uh, to Australia to access 
proper palliative care. And he was eventually transferred. And so she had already formed um, connections within the refugee advocacy sector, which incorporates um, not just individual advocates who form relationships with um, refugees remotely um, and provide them with uh, both emotional and material support, but also includes a whole lot of very large organisations like mm. MSF and World Vision and um, Stalin Secret Resource Centre. And so there's a, there's a huge uh, group of um, NGOs doing this sort of work, which is a real pity given that Australia is a first world country that, you know, anyway, that's a separate point. Absolutely. But, you know, so when, so what happened towards the end of 2018 is the children started becoming really unwell. And this was on a background of being offshore in detention with no hope of resettlement for many years. Yeah. Um, and they, it was in the context of potentially being promised um, resettlement in the US and then some of that had fallen through. And so in that inevitable way, um, disappointment upon disappointment, the, when the parents start to fall apart, the children start to fall apart yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and so the, the children were experiencing um, a, a particular kind of syndrome where they were emotionally withdrawn, they were unable to eat, unable to drink. Um, it, was, it was pretty tragic. And so the advocacy sector decided that a campaign was necessary, otherwise children were going to die. Yeah. Um, and so they uh, decided to launch this campaign and they wanted medical um, advocacy to be at the heart of it because fundamentally these were health issues yeah. affecting these children. And so they approached Sarah and to see if she could get the medical community behind it, maybe do another open letter, um, see if she could get the medical colleges to support this. And at this time, there were a couple of colleges like RACP who had quite a long um, and involved history in uh, refugee advocacy. And there were lots of colleges like, uh, for example, College of Surgeons who had not previously um, considered themselves as having a role in this sort of public health advocacy. Yeah. You know, they saw themselves more as a government and training organisation. Um, and so Sarah was put on the task of trying to bring all of the colleges together. And so completely randomly, uh, she sent me a message on Twitter um, on a Friday afternoon while I was operating <laughs> saying, hey, can you give me a call? You know, there might be a I, I need to talk to a surgeon and there might be a chance to, um, you know, make some significant changes. So she didn't, in the she didn't know who you were, though. She just sort of no, knew you she didn't generally. Know. As how, what sort of what, what about you had sort of um, had, had caused you, I, look, you, uh, you in particular? To be honest, even though Sarah's one of my dearest friends, I've never asked her that question. <laughs> uh, she, she, was, she had actually approached another surgeon first, and that surgeon had uh, sent her a link to the college's contact us website. Right. And so she, she was feeling a bit down about that. She yeah, said, yeah. I want someone who can do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, so I gave her a call and she's like, you know, I need to get a message to the college president. And I forgot I didn't know who the college president was, but I knew someone who worked in the same town as him. And so, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I started working with the colleges of surgeons and anaesthetists um, to try and get them to sign on to this open letter. Um, and so we, we co-authored this letter and it was, it, it all it all got a bit bigger than Ben Hur. Um, but but the other thing that happened on the side was you know I went to a kid's birthday party where uh, one of the other mums who's worked in government for a while said an open letter isn't enough. You actually need doctors to contact their local MPs. And so we also started a letter writing campaign, um, and we we had a goal of getting at least one doctor in every electorate in Australia to 
send a letter to their local MP saying that this was an issue that was important yeah. to them. And we got about 85% of electorates, um, but, you know, thousands of doctors sent letters yeah. um, to say that this was an issue that was important to them. And, and ultimately, the children were removed from Nauru, um, some of them in pretty dire straits. Um, but then the thing that unexpectedly happened was Karen Phelps won office in the middle of all of yeah, this. Yeah, of and course. so she she has always, um, she's had a long history of uh, advocating for refugee rights. And yep. so she introduced the Medivac legislation, which was passed against the government's will yep. um, by a coalition formed by the crossbench and the opposition. Um, and that became, they, they actually filibustered in the last, um, parliamentary sitting of 2018, so it wasn't passed the first yeah. parliamentary sitting of 2019, um, but it was passed without any provision for operationalisation. So there was no funding attached to the legislation. There was it was just a piece of legislation that, if you know a refugee could find two doctors to conduct medical assessments, uh, then sure they could they could apply to uh, the government to be transferred to Australia for medical care. Um, so as a as a piece of paper, it was very powerful and also useless at the mm. same time. Um, so again, the refugee sector, you know, got in behind that and said, well, we've got to operationalise this in some way. Um, and that was only doctors could do that because it was only doctors who could do the assessments. It was only doctors who could understand the medical notes. It was only doctors who, who could actually conduct that work. Um, so Sarah and Natalie Sertle and uh, a whole bunch, Julia George, a whole bunch of other doctors all got together and I sort of threw my lot in with them again. Um, and we we set up on the fly quite a significant operation. Um, and uh, this RNC Resource Centre was a significant partner. The Human Rights Law Centre was a significant partner. Refugee Health. Uh, sorry, Refugee Legal was a significant partner. So it was a it was it was a very um, sector. Uh, it was all we all worked together. What I'm trying to say, the whole yep. sector actually came together and worked together, um, and we conducted a significant number of assessments and a significant number of patients were transferred to Australia for medical care. Um, and look, that's not the end of the story. Mm. Um, obviously, what refugees need is resettlement, um, and it is still a tragedy that. So many um, refugees and asylum seekers remain in onshore detention, offshore detention, community detention, um, temporary protection visas, you know, a full gamut of, um, of problematic situations which stop people from actually being able to get on with their lives, having some sort of stability and sense yeah, of, you know, yeah. what's going to happen tomorrow. And I hope that, you know, anyone listening who's lived through the pandemic and understands that sort of deep stress that comes with uncertainty um, I hope they have a little. I'm sure all the listeners already have sympathy for refugees, but I hope they they have that just that little bit more empathy of what it must be like to live sure. for six seven years under these circumstances. No, I, th- I think you're right. I think it is a one of the you know I wouldn't call it perhaps a silver lining, but this year certainly has has sharpened a lot of people's focus, and I think made people giving people the opportunity to really put a lot of stuff into perspective and reconsider the way. That they, that they might view some of these issues. I mean, it's interesting because one mm-hmm. of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, because, you know, you've talked about how um, in, in your answer just a moment ago about, you mm. know, this is a public, you, you're looking, this is this is at its core a health issue. This is around getting mm. a better outcome and, and a better um, environment for the for the benefit of the health of, the, of these children but also their parents and, and mm. as well. 
and sort of separating it from the political the um, side of things, mm. which is obviously you know, makes it really really difficult. I mean, how do you separate those two two things? Because I mean, it seems that there's there is a real need for for to be able to separate politics from these kinds of issues in our social discourse more generally. I mean, you look at the the polarization um, that we now have in the world, and it seems you know whether it's been fueled by social media or whatever it might be, or, or demo, you know, mm. political demagoguery. Do you think that 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 does get in the way of rational discussions um, and making real you know mm. proper decisions and, and decision making processes where we can learn mm. from one another, actually listen to one another, actually change our thinking and evolve our responses on these kinds of things? Mm. I think that um, we need to understand politics in the context of uh, political leaders work for us, and and if you know, they're only human. Um, it, it's hard sometimes for political leaders to get the get everything right. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, they do work for us. And if we don't tell them what the issues are, then then it's, then we won't get any change. And I think that there is a real sense of um, oh, almost like it's, to approach politicians or to be political in any way is wrong because things should be independent of politics. Mm. But the problem is because politicians form our government and the government control what we do, what we what they fund, you know, everything else, you can't actually – all change is fundamentally political. You, you yeah. can't separate that out. And I think that that's really hard. I think it's also hard because I feel like politics is becoming more and more partisan, not just in Australia, but also around the world. And so there is this real polarisation of the right wing and the left wing and what it means to be right wing and what it means to be left wing. Whereas the, the problem is at the end of the day, when you're voting for a party, what you're doing is you're taking... 50, 100, 200, 500 policies. And as an individual, you're deciding what combination of things fits best with your needs and your values. Mm. Whereas when you're looking at individual issues, it's my personal opinion that you have to be not partisan in that because there will be no political party that treats any individual issue absolutely perfectly. And so that's where leaving politics aside and looking at an individual issue on the on it on its own merits is, is really important. Mm. And it's been interesting, particularly in Victoria, seeing how this partisanship plays out um, with coronavirus. Oh, you know, sure. as someone who has publicly advocated for necessary changes, you know, I've been called everything from a conservative surgeon, right wing shill who just doesn't like, you know, losing my patients and not being allowed to operate to a left-wing activist who has no idea what happens in the real world. Um, and and it's, re- and it's been really interesting um, because those arguments are always made by people who are very, very partisan in their beliefs. Yeah. Um, do I think that Dan Andrews did a pretty good job? Yeah, I do. Do I think that he could have done a better job? Yeah, I do. Do I think that, you know, the Liberal Party would have done a better job? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe so. I, I, I don't know because that's counterfactual. Yeah. And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, if you're advocating for better protections for healthcare workers, that doesn't necessarily make you anti-government or anti-Labor or anti-Dan Andrews. It just is pointing out that there is an issue here that has 
consequences for individuals and consequences for all of society because if we don't get healthcare workers infections under control, you're not going to get the rest of society out of lockdown. And if you're raising concerns about contact tracing, it's not a criticism of the individuals doing the contact tracing or of the government who is overseeing the contact tracing. It is simply saying, hey, there's a problem here, guys. Yeah. And and you know the, the the corollary to that is you know you, you don't blame the intern when something happens at a hospital, but nor do you necessarily blame the CEO. There is usually a structural problem, and if you can move away from that sort of who's to blame here and actually just look at the issue and go these are the issues, these are the things that need to be fixed. Yeah. Um. That's that's how you can actually get to a solution. But when you've got big social issues that is fundamentally political because if you're not engaging with the politics of it, you're not actually going to get change because politicians are the people who can actually make change. You made me laugh a moment ago when you <laughs> mentioned, <laughs> I feel bad almost, but I wanted to point out, like, when you mentioned the, the, the two extremes of the criticisms that you've copped, um, you know, mm. from, from the left and the right, um, I was laughing purely at the absurdity of it. Um, but these are real, you know, these are, as someone who... It was one of the questions I want to ask you as someone who, who is out there mm. advocating publicly about these kinds of issues and obviously you're quite you know um, uh, active on social media as well uh, which is where a lot of the, the, the criticism can come um, as well I just wondered mm. what what is it like sort of dealing with that kind of pushback I mean um, it, you know having spoken to, to others in, in this area um, and you know specifically doctors that, that have you know put their, their head up above the parapet in, in that sense yep. that there can be quite quite a, a visceral pushback and it can be quite nasty and quite horrid um, what's it been like for you dealing with that is it something you were ready for or is it sort of something you have become used to or is it still get under your skin sometimes uh, oh no it absolutely gets under your skin um, I, I think it's really difficult I think you've got to be very clear in who you're willing to take criticism from. Um, My philosophy is that anyone, everyone has a right to criticise anything that I say publicly. Um, And in part, you know, I'm only human and sometimes I only have partial information. And, you know, my biggest criticism of leaders is that they don't listen to individuals, so they don't listen to the voices on the ground. And so if I consider myself immune to all criticism, then I'm committing the same error in logic. So so fundamentally, I don't have a problem with criticism as long as it is, uh, depending on what the intent of it is. If it is educative, it is, if it is, um, you know, polite, and not even necessarily polite, angry criticism is fine as long as, you know, it's not dangerous, I suppose is probably the, the better word. Um, so that I don't have a fundamental problem with. I do think that there are issues with engaging with media. I think it's important to keep in mind that um, media, people in media, I, I know lots of them, I'm friends with lots of them, um, but they have their own agendas as well. Um, and particularly when engaging with a, a with a journalist or a reporter that you don't have a trusted relationship with, it is it is worthwhile being wary. Mm. Um, it is particularly worthwhile being wary with pre-recorded interviews because they will then you know take your words out of context, splice things together in odd ways, um, not you know not necessarily attribute things correctly. Um, I, I'm, I'm having a big break 
from COVID media at the moment. It all it all got a bit much for me there right. for a while. Um, and in part, that was because of of journalists who are taking things out of context. Um, and well, especially and, you in know, Victoria, it did seem quite. Well, you talked about the polarisation of it. It was, yeah. you know, from from looking from outside of the state. I mean, based in New South Wales myself, but it was it was quite clear um, just how um, polarising that the debate and the discussion was. And I'm not surprised to yes. hear you say that. It, it, you know, it can take a toll. I'm sure it did, and it was and it was disappointingly polarised. Uh, I think it's it, it, it actually it's, it's a good topic that goes to the heart of the right-wing-left-wing divide that is getting bigger and bigger. Um, I I do think that we, I think that the left left itself very little wiggle room in being extremely pro-lockdown, that it, it didn't leave itself any space to offer constructive critiques of the additional things that needed to be done. Mm. And I feel like the right wing in being so aggressively anti-lockdown also didn't leave itself any wiggle room when it came to the provision of constructive criticism. Um, And so I I think each side of the debate boxed itself in in such a difficult way that as the weeks dragged on, you were not considered to be adequately progressive if you weren't just satisfied that we were locked down forever and you were not considered to be adequately right-wing if you weren't fighting aggressively to get us out of lockdown. And what everyone was ignoring in the middle was all of the ongoing issues around casualised work and workers yeah. moving from one place to another and, you know, the fact that uh, international students were taking the most dangerous jobs in the state, which basically anyone who didn't have to work them was simply not going to. Mm. Um, and they were, you know, picking up, COVID from cleaning, you know, infected nursing homes wearing a cloth mask that the cleaning companies were required to, you know, were telling them to take themselves. And then they were spreading it amongst their household of nine people who were also starving international students. So there, there were lots of things that needed to be addressed. But because no extreme side had left itself any wiggle room, it was very hard to mount any sort of critique. You know, I would have loved some Victorian opposition to come out and say anything useful, but they didn't. Um, and so it meant that, you know, if you did critique the the, the Labor government, then it was immediately seen as you aligning yourself you're with the back-filling yeah. people, hitting, you're on that team. Yeah. Um, and so it it actually, I think, eventually got in the way of progress. Um, I think our public health teams did an absolutely fantastic job. I don't mean any of this as a criticism of any no, of no. them. Um, I just think it was a very complicated situation where... People on the ground had observation, important observations and things to say, and there was no avenue for that necessarily to be heard particularly well. Um, and I think that all of our, you know, public hospitals suffer from the same problem. I think a lot of our corporations suffer from the same problem. We in Australia we seem to have this anathema against actually listening to workers. I, I don't understand why. I'm conscious that I've taken up a lot of your time today. So before I let you go, though, I just wanted to. Mm. to to perhaps, you know, we've spoken a lot about um, the the issues that you're, you're very passionate about and the work that you're doing to, to advocate, especially around public health issues. Um, mm. What would your advice be to, to you know to to those who might be wanting to to, to champion or health uh, help help um, their patients or, or at a public health level? You know, we've spoken to, to people in the past, like Priya Alexander is a great example that springs to mind. Yeah. Uh, of yeah. what what 
she has had to do to, to try and do what you know achieve the the, the goals that she's sort of set herself outside of the, the confines of, of, the, of the of the consultation room what would your advice be yeah. to those who, who want to make a difference at a bigger level um my number one rule is that i'm not doing any of this for fame or glory. Uh, honestly, there's better ways to fame and glory. Um, <laughs> I, do, I, I do think that having a, a public profile is tricky. Um, I'm, my, my personal preference would, and I joke about this with one of my dear friends, would be to be famously reclusive. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love all of this sort of stuff. Mm. But I, I think that it's important and I think that it's an avenue to affect change. And so, therefore, it's sort of something I'm willing to tolerate. Whereas I think that if you go into it seeking fame and notoriety, um, then you risk uh, taking opportunities that are not necessarily good for you um, and you risk altering your beliefs and your brand um, in order to chase that notoriety rather than necessarily be true to yourself. So uh, what I would say is to spend a lot of time working out what you call values. And I still get this wrong. You know, I, I there was, you know, one interview that I did in COVID that was cut completely out of context. And I read it and I went, that's, that's not me. And yeah. I, I, I never should have said yes to it. That was ultimately what it came down to. It was someone that I didn't know, someone that I didn't trust. It was in the middle of the consultant, busy consulting day. Like, can you say this thing? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, so, so you know, it's, it's fine. Failures are okay, but but you've got to reflect on those failures and you know, trying to work out well, how did that happen? And it was because I was tired and I was overwhelmed and there was too much going on. And so, you know, I've, I've just you've got to say no for a while if that's if that's the case. Um, but I think, you know, it, it ultimately comes down to your core values and what you're trying to achieve and trying to stay true to that uh, as much as possible um, and being prepared to give it up if it's not right. And, you know, I, I, I took the same approach to my career. You know, when, when I was trying to get on to plastic surgery, I gave myself two goes. And if I wasn't going to get on, I simply was going to go and do something else. And similarly, you know, as I said, with medicine and journalism, if I didn't get into medicine, I just wasn't going to do it. Um, and so similarly, I think with my writing and other things, uh, it's, it's not, it's something that I do for fun. And if it's not fun, I'm just not going to do it anymore. Um, and if it's not worthwhile, I'm just not going to do it anymore. So that's, that's the advice that I would give is that it can be really rewarding, but it can also be a very demanding, dangerous, stressful mistress. And you've just got to be prepared to let it go. Well. Thank you so much for your time. We've covered so many uh, elements. Of it. I feel like I could keep you on the, on the line for another hour and, and, and not run out of questions to ask you. You've had an absolutely fascinating journey. Um, I'm sure there's plenty more to come. But look, thank you so much for, for having a chat for CCIM. No, my pleasure. I had a great time. Massive thanks again to Dr. Neela Janakiraminen, who, as I said at the top, will be speaking in just a few, a few short weeks as part of the CCIM 2020 conference, along with the Dr. Norman Swan, who has been announced as a late surprise guest. There's still time to register. If you've not already, just head over to creativecareersinmedicine.com, follow the links to the events page and get involved. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. I'll be back with more interviews and episodes very soon.